Welcome to the Design Talk podcast. Season 13 is a collaboration between Design Talk and the Business Analytics Educator Forum, a place for educators to share tips and tricks for teaching business analytics and its application in industry. We cover a range of topics addressing the knowledge and skills needs of people entering this new field. I'm Alan Higgins. Today, I talk with Annabella Suarez from the University of the West of England about how to produce and deliver good quality data. Let's start with a three-minute summary. My main top tips would be the first one uh, is don't reinvent the wheel. Uh, whatever you're trying to measure, whether it is satisfaction or um, performance, whatever it is, someone else has measured that before. So go and look at the literature, go and look at what was done before and go from there to see if you can use exactly the same scales or adjust them uh, somehow to what you are doing. Um, the second main tip I would give is for you to stick to one liquor scale. So the biggest mistakes I see in, in when people design questionnaires is one question will have a liquor scale of five points, another one of seven points, another one of four, another one of nine. And this inconsistency between the scales then means that you can't compare uh, between uh, the type of data that you are collecting. So choose one and just stick to it. It will make the respondent's life so much easier as well if they know that you're always sticking to one to five, right? Um, and finally, I, I think investing some time in the design and the flow of the layout, because people perceive things differently, especially nowadays where we're answering surveys in our mobile phones uh, on the screen. It's not paper anymore, you know, and there's a million things I could talk about, but I think a final uh, rule, uh, not three, I'll give you four, just because I think this one is really important. It has to do with the number of respondents. I get this question all the time. How many respondents do I actually need? And there's a basic rule of thumb that goes uh, regarding the number of questions you have. So depending on the number of questions, just multiply it by five. So if you have 10 questions, multiply it by five. It means you need 50 responses minimum to be able to make any inferences from that data. Now sit back and listen to the whole interview. Let's start. I'm delighted to be joined today by Annabella de Silva Felipe Suarez. Annabella is a senior lecturer in strategy and operations management at the University of West England and a member of the Business Analytics Educators Forum. Analytics educators come from all kinds of professions. Can you share a little about your own background and your perspective on data analytics? Yes, of course. Uh, first of all, thanks for inviting me to talk to you about this. Um, I'm very passionate about uh, analytics education, and that comes down to my background precisely. So I have done a bachelor's in um, social psychology of politics and economics. And in my country, the degrees are uh, five years long. And at the final two years, you do a little bit of a like a specialization kind of thing where you choose um, what area you want to go into. And in my year, they were starting this new uh, field in the in, in the faculty in the university that was dedicated to um, analytics in the sense of helping students have a better grasp of how to interpret and analyze data to help them work in companies and so on to 
um, help companies understand their data. So the program was very geared towards that uh, because it was recognized that that's something that companies needed uh, in order to progress. So I was doing uh, a psychology degree and when I had to choose my specialization, I found that to be very interesting and to be more in line with what I felt was needed as well uh, and that it would also open um job prospects. And I find it interesting that we are still precisely in the same situation right now, so many years later, but with a whole new range of technology that facilitates uh, uh, this this task, you know, because things have evolved so much that the way we look at data now and the way that we do data analysis has completely changed. So business analytics is different. Uh, uh, and the type of uh, conclusions and the type of um, data that we can get from it is also very, very different from what it was at that time and the available options at that time. Um, but yeah, my, my background is that. So it's a, a degree in social psychology, for short, uh, that was very focused on training us in terms of uh, methods, uh, in terms of um, data analysis to allow us to help companies understand how to get data and analyze that data in a meaningful manner. So I suspect we're going to hear a similar story from a lot of practitioners, and that is they may be in accounting or sociology or social psychology, um, marketing, economics, and they find data is a key part of, of the work, the profession. And in that sense, how is how do you see data being used and analytics being used in um, the social psychology profession, the profession of uh, of psychometrics? I'm not sure. Tell me a little about it. Uh, so I haven't actually gone through that route, as you know, because I I've opted to pursue my career in management. Uh, so I was very into supply chain quality management kind of thing. So that's kind of the route I took. Uh, but yeah, I started in companies and I started with, um, a placement, what, what here is called in UK, a placement or an internship, I guess, in a, a city council. And they wanted me to look at their quality data and also do some research into the quality of the service that they were providing. So my whole, placement was helping them develop surveys for them to be able to collect that data and then analyzing that data and providing recommendations in terms of the quality uh, of the service quality. So that was kind of my whole dissertation uh, at the completion of my undergraduate uh, degree um, that was focusing on that. So it was slightly different than the other areas at that time, because obviously when you think about psychology, it doesn't come to mind thinking about this intersection almost between uh, uh, a marketeer and a psychologist in the sense of trying to understand uh, customers, trying to understand uh, what people or consumers, what people were feeling or thinking about so that you could then uh, understand how to change that. And our role was very much into developing the instruments to do that, assisting in the development of those instruments, and then analyzing the data that came afterwards uh, to be able to provide that. So in general, in psychology, 
analytics is very important because you are uh, looking at many studies. You're not only developing them yourself and analyzing the data, but you're also looking at studies that give you uh, conclusions on um, what is the trend, let's say. And, and this is true for any field, by the way, uh, of course. It is very important that when you're reading these studies, you are clear about what it actually means. So you need to understand the statistics behind it um, so that you're understanding what the data is actually telling you and the limitations of what the data is telling you. Uh, and, and that's pretty much why data analytics is important in psychology or any kind of field, because it has exactly the same role, um, because you need to understand um, how it contributes to what you are doing, but more importantly, the limitations of what it's telling you. That's, that's kind of the general uh, thing I would say. So you took uh, the academic path, and, and we'll come back to that in a second. But many of your uh, students at the undergraduate level went on into industry. What type of work do they do today, do you see? Um, so it's, it's pretty much that interesting intersection between marketing and 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 almost operations in a way. Well, many of them went on to uh, work in very main. Uh, um, I don't I don't. This is the problem. I'm trying to translate from Portuguese to English. So I'm, I'm struggling here, but they work. Uh, into main, they want to become managers in main um, retail style companies. So doing data analysis and working with companies, analyzing data and collecting data. Um, so shops, uh, perhaps. Um, not not necessarily shops, like big multinational style companies in the retail sector for different things. So like one of them represents um, uh, it's linked to tourism. Another one uh, was linked to a very big uh, company that has um, supermarkets and other and other enterprises. And of course, working with them to uh, try to understand how to get data and analyze that data to to become more profitable or whatever the goal was. So they all went on to those type of careers. And of course, there was a, a, a part of the, the, the group that went to academia. So a lot of people that chose to go into academia based on their passion for uh, data analysis. I imagine that the people in industry are bringing in market research that they commission themselves and combining it with uh, internal data, transactional data, shipping data, public um, production data. That's the kind of uh, intersection I see. Yes, that's that's my understanding uh, of it. Of course, that was many, many years ago. So by now, I've completely lost track of what they're doing and where they are. Uh, but that was the, the goal uh, from that new program at the time. It was to launch the students, including myself, into a job market where you would have an a, a, an added value, so an advantage when compared to everyone else applying for this job, uh, for these type of jobs, because you had an understanding of how to understand data and what the data could give you um, in, in terms of benefits for the company 
in the long run, of course. Can you talk a little about how academic research differs from industry industry research? Uh, the biggest difference, I would say, is the time frame. So, of course, in academia, we all want to produce papers as quickly as possible, but there is no pressure in the turnaround uh, in that sense. So it, it's done uh, in many many ways in a conservative way because you need to follow a series of uh, steps like applying for ethics approval and th- there's a series of things you have to do to be able to develop academic research it, it's okay to say that academic research is slower than industry i think i think <laughs> we'll, we'll live with that yes uh, but in in industry that's not the case in industry you need to be really quick uh to turn around whatever research you're doing uh, because it's a it's time-pressured environment where you need to make decisions really fast. And you don't do research for the sake of doing research. You're not trying to um, uh, increase knowledge or develop novelty in whatever is there. You're trying to get to the bottom of a very specific problem that you might have in your company that needs a solution fast. So you can't spend loads of amount of time like you do in academia, thinking about a research design and thinking about how you're going to develop this research. So you need to be really quick, uh, really flexible to adjust to the pressures of the company. So there's that massive difference between academia and industry. And I would go as far as to say that that's the thing that the students struggle the most because they go from this period of time, uh, particularly in their undergraduate degree, where they're developing their projects and they have a deadline for the assignment, but they, they develop their projects uh, on an ongoing basis to deliver the outcome. And in industry, they do not have that same amount of time. Uh, and I always try to say to my students uh, to think about, like, when we give them assignments, we 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 give them case study analysis kind of thing. So they, they have to analyze the data and the things, interpret whatever is in that case study. I always try to tell them, remember that when you're applying for jobs, you'll be given 24, 48 hours maximum to provide this report that I'm asking you to write right now to the company for you to go to the interview. And the majority of assessment centers in, in the field that I work at the moment, which is operations and supply chain, uh, not psychology. <laughs> um, the assessment centers or the interviews are based on this is giving you a case uh, example for you to provide recommendations. So if this is what's being asked for uh, from you in a very short amount of time, you need to have developed that ability of critical thinking and critical analysis in advance so that when the opportunity comes, you're used to doing that. Um, and that that's kind of the, the the premise behind everything that we do in in academia as well is doing that. Yeah, no, I think um, the, naturally both are focused, but in different ways. Academia and industry, industry is focused on the here and now, and they don't have the luxury of time. Uh, academia is focused on generality and broader impact, and does have the luxury of time, although. I'm sure students in a semester um, think that their deadlines are pretty unreasonable. But you, to, to even think of a uh, turnaround of 24, 48 hours in an industry setting, that's pretty, that's pretty um, uh, hardcore. 
Yeah, and it and it's standard because that's the time frame you're working with. There will be some projects that you will be able to take more time on, uh, so that you can have pondered decisions. You know, you can really look at the the data that you have, analyze the data, and come to uh, thought through conclusions or decisions. But there are other types of uh, situations where it needs to be really fast. Uh, so you have to adjust. You have to be flexible to adjust to that. And and that has an impact on data quality. I think data quality is a key a key concern, isn't it? And how do you produce good quality data? Yeah, I think that that is one of the things that we always get to is what do you consider good quality data? Um, well. For me, good quality data, and I would think that for all of us, is that type of data that is um, able to, um, that you are able to get the inferences from that data, the thing, from the things that you need. So data that is telling you what you need to figure out, uh, if you know what I mean. And that's valid for academics and for industry. If you and, and that brings us back to the whole idea of developing uh, an instrument to collect data, whatever that is, a, an interview script or a, a survey, uh, a questionnaire, uh, whatever you're looking at, it needs to enable you. It needs to allow you to uh, do the analysis and, and uh, take the inferences that you're expecting to get from that data. That's what good quality data is. If it's not allowing you to actually retrieve the information that you need, then it's pointless. And and we keep getting this discussion with the whole idea behind big data and so on, because there's a lot of data out there. <laughs> there's there's I mean, companies are inundated by the amount of data that they have and overwhelmed by the amount of data that they have. But the key is what is really relevant for you. From all that amount of data that you have, what suits the goals, the strategic goals that your company has, what is really relevant for you to look at is those type of decisions that will make a difference in the competitive arena. Um, so that's all of that comprises what good quality data is, is you being able to select the right things to analyze and the relevant things, depending on the type of information you're looking for. Yeah, so uh, some I, uh, words have popped into my head as you've spoken there. It's not only about volume, and sometimes volume isn't a, a signifier of quality, is it? Um, it must be reliable, and uh, construct validity has to be present, I think. Yes. And the instruments should be valid or reliable or robust in some way. And and of course, with data quality, there's this aspect, particularly in a digital world, of cleaning the data a little bit beforehand. It needs to be structured in a sense, doesn't it? Yes, of course. And that that's one of the difficulties as well, because you in the past, I have worked with companies where as part of my job, where you receive a set, a data set of things that don't really give you what you need to get the conclusions that they want. Not not in the sense that you're trying to manipulate the results. That's not what I mean. But the way they ask the questions to their clients 
is not allowing us to then do the type of analysis that would get them the conclusions that they need or that they want from that data. So you're left with this database that you need to clean to make sense of it, uh, where you need to remove incomplete answers, for example, uh, and where you're um, looking at whatever they provided you and the, the it doesn't make sense, basically. Yeah. So it, it it's it gets us back to the data quality, the reliability of the data, how you ask the questions, uh, what kind of database do you have to be able to to do that analysis? Um, so, yeah, sometimes you're in a position where you can't. It's very hard to get back to them with some kind of analysis that will fulfill their expectations. Yeah, you, you can't make inferences about the weather if your data doesn't include temperature data, for example. Exactly, exactly. Um, now, an area that I'm not very um, uh, strong on, but I know you are uh, a bit of a, a questionnaire geek. So can you share some tips um, for somebody designing a questionnaire? Bearing in mind, this isn't supposed to be a lecture. So it's like uh, your three tips to, that we should uh, keep in mind. Yeah, I always go into lecture mode almost uh, because I am a, a geek about it. Uh, not, not. I wouldn't say that I'm an expert. I would just say that it was a very strongly um, uh, emphasized during my training uh, as a psychologist, the importance of the way you ask questions. And therefore, because of that, um, I, I am a geek about it, about the way you ask questions, the order in which you ask the questions. Uh, and so on. But my main top tips would be the first one uh, is don't reinvent the wheel. Uh, whatever you're trying to measure, whether it is satisfaction or um, uh, performance, whatever it is, someone else has measured that before. So go and look at the literature, go and look at what was done before and go from there to see if you can use exactly the same scales or adjust them uh, somehow to what you are doing. That will uh, make it much easier in terms of the reliability that we were talking about to make sure that you're actually measuring what you're supposed to be measured. If someone else has already done it uh, and it has been used many, many times, it means that scales is actually reliable enough for it to be uh, reused um, in, in that particular field that the particular topic you are looking at. Um, the second main tip I would give is for you to stick to one liquor scale. So the biggest mistakes I see in, in when people design questionnaires is one question will have a liquor scale of five points, another one of seven points, another one of four, another one of nine. And this inconsistency between the scales then means that you can't compare uh, between uh, the type of data that you are collecting. So choose one and just stick to it. It will make the respondent's life so much easier as well if they know that you're always sticking to one to five, right? Um, and finally, I, I think investing some time in the design and the flow of the layout, because people perceive things differently, especially nowadays where we're answering surveys in our mobile phones, uh, on the screen. It's not paper anymore, you know. Uh, that was the old days when I did my degree, when we had to go out to the streets and take a paper and ask people, can you please fill in the survey and spend hours then in putting everything back into a computer? That doesn't exist anymore. Everyone does it online. So investing some time into 
looking at how many questions you want to show per screen and things like that uh, will substantially increase uh, the likelihood that people will actually answer your survey and answer all of it instead of just part of it and things like that. And there's a million things I could talk about, but I think a final uh, rule, uh, not three, I'll give you four, just because I think this one is really important. It has to do with the number of respondents. I get this question all the time. How many respondents do I actually need? And there's a basic rule of thumb that goes uh, regarding the number of questions you have. So depending on the number of questions, just multiply it by five. So if you have 10 questions, multiply it by five. It means you need 50 responses minimum to be able to make any inferences from that data uh, and so on. So that's a basic rule of time. Of course, more respondents is always better uh, for the validity of your results and, and the type of analysis you, you can make with it. But that's a basic rule of thumb that kind of guides you on the length of your survey. Um, and I, I guess I'll shut up now. Yeah, no, no, that they're really uh, helpful tips. Um, though, I mean, I think one of the more commonest misunderstandings that uh, anybody has when they uh, do any kind of sort of market research or any kind of research, they all assume that questionnaire is the, the gold standard. And, but they also assume the questionnaire is just made up and that they can just make one up, which I think is wrong, wrong, wrong. And so what you're saying is absolutely bang on. Do your homework first and don't reinvent the wheel. Read the literature, look for solid tested instruments. And I, your second tip on the Likert scale is absolutely uh, valid and, and hugely important that we don't mix up our constructs sort of data types. As you say, you can't compare and contrast if they're three in a mixed 5.7.3 point Likert scale. So that's a really helpful tip. Um, the flow and the design, I imagine when you were doing um, your first learning um, to, to do customer research or, or market research, you, you, you were saying you, you actually would stand on the street outside a department store with your other students and run the surveys there. And then that must be a very kind of confronting uh, experience to understand how the flow and the layout and the comprehensibility of what it is you're doing uh, works. Yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a completely different experience. And I, I remember being um, asked to leave a shopping mall. <laughs> because I was bothering the customers. Um, and yeah, it, it is, you get, I've learned a lot from it because you get a lot, you get a bit of everything. And that's why I have a lot of sympathy when people try to approach me in a shopping mall with all these, whatever they're doing, charities or whatever it is. I'm always very sympathetic to their cause because I've been there. But the reality of it is, uh, that you might get more information in terms of the layout, but that's something that you would get anyway in a pretest situation. Right. So, I was going to ask, would you do pretests? Absolutely. Of course. You say, so, yeah. so, in it, whether you do it face to face or you do it online, you always need a pretest stage uh, to see how people are understanding uh, the survey. Um, and, you know, the, the common way is do a, a pretest with three stages where you're testing what people are understanding in terms of the language you're using and so on. Then you're testing the flow and then finally you're testing uh, layout and things like that. Ambiguity of that language uh, as well. So it, it you can break it down. Uh, 
in terms of what your goal is for the pretest. Uh, a lot of people only do one pretest, so they test everything at the same time. They test ambiguity of language, flow and layout, everything at the same time, structure and so on. Other people break it down uh, so that they make sure that that it's clear the changes they have made. So it's so totally up to you. But linking back to what we were talking about before, industry versus academia, Again, I think this is something that is a luxury of academics, because when we're talking about designing a questionnaire, marketeers using uh, or, or thinking it's something you make up, uh, some of them, not all of them, by the way, <laughs> uh, but you don't have the luxury of time in, in, in industry. So to go back to the literature and actually see what has been done and so on, you probably only have that type of time during your academic studies because when you get to the company everything is so fast-paced that they probably won't give you that time so it's a tricky balance uh, but the reality of it is that the better your questionnaire is if you are doing research questionnaire based research the better your questionnaire is the better the data analysis will be and the inferences that you can take from it i suspect Let's be very positive here and and say that perhaps the students may be bringing good practice into industry from their academic formation. Um, so the instruments that they've been exposed to and and apply and develop uh, as in college um, do filter their way into industry. So it, it's the onus is on us to give them the very best tools to to go out there with. And it, we come full circle here because it's precisely the reason why. I am very passionate about including business analytics in education um, in, in every level and thinking about this, uh, whether we're thinking about from a module perspective or a program perspective. I think this is a fundamental skill that all our students should have and that only by doing this type of modules will they be able to have this fundamental understanding of the implications of data and data collection, data analysis, and uh, what the, the relevance of data in their companies. Uh, so that's why I'm passionate about it. And that's relevant across specialism, medicine, computing, engineering, exactly. accounting, psychology, economics, etc. Yeah. It's a transferable skill across all disciplines. So that's fantastic. I think we've covered all the points we wanted to touch on today. Um, to close out the interview, uh, I'm going to ask a kind of uh, wrap up question here. And uh, what are your favorite podcasts or video channels? Um, do you have any in particular that deal with data science? No, <laughs> is the answer. Um, but just because I uh, I'm Funny enough, I deliver a module called Personal and Professional Development to my master students. And um, so I'm always looking for ideas in terms of personal and professional development. So those are the uh, the examples that I have is Mel Robbins and Jay Shetty, which are self-development podcasts kind of thing. Uh, I also like Steve Bartlett, which um, has quite interesting discussions with different kinds of people, um, uh, many of them about business and setting up businesses and so on. Uh, but, yeah, funny enough, I do not currently follow any analytics forum uh, or podcast, but 
I've recently learned of a few from a good friend of mine uh, sitting in this interview. So I will be following some of them uh, from now onwards. Um, I'm trying to find them on Spotify so I can follow them. <laughs> Very good. Um, I think uh, there's a wealth of material out there and hopefully the BAEF uh, podcast and, and YouTube channel will be one of them in, in, in due course. I hope so. Um, <laughs> Let's wrap up with sharing a guilty geeky secret. Do you have a guilty geeky secret? A guilty geeky secret. Um, I think um, the I'm addicted to renovation programs. <laughs> it's a bit of a geeky secret. Uh, I'm a cat person. Very if good. That's relevant. That um, is, that's always relevant. I am a Star Trek rather than a Star Wars person. Absolutely. Star Trek all the way. And yeah, I think that's it, really. I can't think of anything else that is interesting. <laughs> okay, well, we'll wrap up there. And really, thank you so much for sharing your ideas about the business analytics as a profession, as a discipline, and its impact on all areas uh, with us today. And I hope uh, others find it inspiring. Thank you. <laughs>